All right, let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 18, and the title is, Wise Men Still Seek Him. Jesus was sought by wise men. I think that's a pretty familiar um, part of the advent of the uh, Christmas story. Um, And they were wise for seeking him. And then there are the foolish men who scorned the Lord and worship of him. And today there exists those same two group of people, wise men and women who seek the Lord to worship him, and foolish men and women who want to push his influence out of their life and not worship him. We're going to see today that worship was a big threat to King Herod, but it's the very thing that the Lord seeks. As we begin reading in verses 1 through 8, we're going to find out about how Herod was troubled. So let's read together. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the, uh, the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Verse 5, So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them the time the star appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. King Herod. See a little background on who King Herod is. He's an Edomite, also known as an Idumean. But who are they? Well, Jacob and Esau were the twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah. And while they were in uh, Rebekah's womb, there was a, it uh, looked like a, you know, a, a little war going on, a struggle that was happening. And she inquired of the Lord and said, you have two nations and they are struggling against each other inside your womb. And that became prophetic for the relationship that would exist between what would become known as the descendants of Jacob, the Israelites, and the descendants of Esau, the what? Edomites. And so the struggle that we see in chapter 2 between an Israelite king who has been born and an Edomite king who was troubled had a long generational history. After Jacob and Esau were born, the struggle continued. You may recall when Esau came in from hunting one day and was hungry that he traded his birthright to Jacob for some red stew. I don't know what you do with this, but red's really interesting. Red stew. Um, Esau was called um, Edom, which means red. Um, Esau was, when he was born, Genesis 25, 25, said his skin appeared red. Um, moved into the land of Seir, which is well known for its red line, um, uh, sandstone, <laughs> south of the, southeast of the Dead Sea. Red is just there. Uh, do whatever you want with it. I don't know what to do with it myself, but it's just, I find that interesting. There, this is what the name means, and this is kind of a connection. Well, beyond this, generations later, and I'm compressing the story, generations later, as the Israelites are coming out 
from Egypt, from their bondage, they need to pass through, in Numbers chapter 20, the land of Edom. But the Edomites would not let them pass. And we see that this tension continued on. There's a whole book, read it, Obadiah, about uh, the Edomites and the struggle and the tension that exists. The prophetic books of Scripture talk about in the last day of of the Edomites and how they are going to be judged. It is a, a long history of contention that goes all the way back to the womb of Rebekah between Jacob and Esau. The Edomites left their kind of their historical territory in the 5th and 6th century when the Nabataeans drove them out, and they came to live into an area that's known as uh, of southern Judah. And so they eventually kind, kind of, you, we lose sight of them um, after Israel was destroyed in 70 AD. Um, the two nations joined together to fight the Romans, and it turned out poorly for both. So um, only a few had escaped, and you know, we really don't see the Edomites in history today. But prophetically, they're mentioned, and so at least they're territories. So when we read about Herod and how he hears there's another king, if you know the background, if you feel the tension all the way through Scripture between the Edomites and the Israelites, and if you know something about the personality of this Edomite Herod, it was said of him that it was safer. Does anybody know? It's safer to be a what? A pig than to be one of his sons. Because he was a guy that he wanted to hold on to power. He thought everybody was trying to get power. His wives, his family members, they all paid dearly. Anybody that got close to him, if he just had a thought that you were against him, it was over. If you can imagine it, and I'm just going to, you know, kind of paint a scene that we don't read in Scripture. But as he's here getting the announcement that the men from the east have come to worship a king, you can just kind of picture him holding you know, a, a handful of grapes. And he's just kind of taking them and he's eating them. And when they say, hey, we've come to worship the king of the Jews. <laughs> but he would have tried to maintain a really happy smile. Oh, really? You know, but there's fury that is raging through him. But he's trying to present a face of like, this is great news. Let me know so I can go worship too. But everybody in that room knew this is bad news. And it certainly, we'll read it. We'll see what happens. You know the story already and what he's going to do. But that's Herod. That's the Edomite. That's this, this generational struggle that exists. And Satan was the one that's behind it because if you can wipe out the Israelites, you don't have to worry about the Messiah coming. And that's why you have the generational um, fight. And so now it gets down to this very point. Where it's no longer this kind of people of Israel. It's now down to he's just been born. And where has he been born? And he's going to inquire. And he finds out there in Bethlehem. But who are these wise men from the east? Well, we don't have a lot about their identity. But it's been suggested, and it's probable, that, that maybe they, these were those that were influenced by um, Daniel the great prophet Daniel. Um, Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 5, verse 11, speaks of how he was over the, over the astrologers and, and those that were kind of used to looking into the enigmas and stuff. And you probably recall the story. So maybe Daniel, as a, as a great man of faith, well informed with the scriptures, baked it into the curriculum, if you will, um, there in the east that a Messiah would come. But, but, but the star here, they see it. Now, um, 
they follow it. And they end up showing up there in Herod's courtroom and say, we want to worship. We don't have a lot of the information about what this star was all about, but I, it doesn't, the details don't matter a whole lot because if God just wanted to say, hey guys, you see the star? Now let me give you a dream. That could have happened because that certainly was something that was happened in the past. There, there are other ideas that we could consider, but for the sake of time, we'll just move on. Know that these are men that came from the east. Um, these are it's what the role that Daniel played um, in that Babylonian among the Chaldean um, uh, you know, uh, court. And, and so they're coming and they're inquiring. And so uh, Herod's asking about them. He finds out about them. And when he says, where are they from? They, they, the uh, scribes, they go back to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, a passage that was given 750 years earlier. That the Messiah, the King of Kings, this long-awaited one would be born in Bethlehem. Now we hear Bethlehem, and that's a that's just you know there's warm thoughts and ideas that are associated for us with Bethlehem. We think, oh, this is an amazing place, and there's much that happened in Bethlehem. But this is a tiny, tiny little town. You got to know that. It's like saying Lynch Station. No disrespect to Lynch Station. But just, I mean, it's just a tiny little place. Who knows about Lynch Station? Bethlehem. This tiny little country city, village. But it was significant in biblical history. It's where Jacob had buried his wife, Rachel. It's where Ruth had met Boaz. It's where King David grew up as a little boy. And it's what the name Bethlehem, does anybody know what it means? The house of what? House of bread. And what did Jesus say? He said, I am the bread of life. The bread of life was born in the house of bread. And there is, I, this is one of the reasons I love Scripture so much is because there is so many layers of truth and significance and meaning that we can look at and just say, well, look at what the Lord was, was telling us here. Well, under the pretense of worship, Herod says, well, I want to go and worship there. What time did you see the star in the east? But his calculation was far from worship. The calculation was he wanted to kill all these young male children that were born around that time, both in Bethlehem and in the area around. But we see clearly in verses 9 through 11 why it was that the wise men had come. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And they opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We notice that it doesn't say how many wise men that came. They brought three gifts, but we don't know how many wise men. So you're like, oh no, our manger scene's all messed up. No, it's not messed up. There might have been three. But what this gives you ladies freedom to do is go buy more wise men. If you see one, they think that's a really nice looking wise man. Add them in. It doesn't matter. You're not unbiblical by doing it. If there's one you don't like because it got chipped, just throw them out. It's fine. It doesn't matter how many you have there. Wise men came, plural, from the east, and they brought these gifts. Maybe each one brought a gift, and you have three. Maybe that's why we land with three. But they bring these gifts, 
They're very practical because what they're going to find out in just a moment is that Joseph is going to be warned to flee because Herod is going to want to kill all these young children. And so it's practical to have um, gold, which was certainly able to purchase things, to have frankincense and myrrh, which could be traded. These were commodities in that, that day. It was like getting a big wad of cash for them. And they were going to need it as they traveled down to Egypt and spent time down in Egypt to the danger um, uh, past. And eventually they would come back to Nazareth. But notice the gifts that they bring. They bring gold. So let's talk about gold for a moment. This is a, gold, this is a gift that in Scripture is associated with a king. It represents royalty. And they're bringing this gold to a small child and they worship him because he is the king that has been born. In Psalm 72, verses 10 through 15, you get a glimpse, you get a feel about the place of gold and it's a giving to a king um, and giving praise. It says, The kings of Tarshish and of the isles will bring gifts, presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. For he will deliver the needy when he cries, the poor and him who has no helper. He will spare the poor and needy and will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence and precious shall their blood in his be, shall be in their, his sight. And he shall live. And the gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer also will be made for him continually. And daily he shall be praised. So the worship and giving of gold to a king, um, and this is speaking about the, you know, Jesus in the millennial kingdom, it's just the association that we see in Scripture. It was a way for them to say, our allegiance, our reverence, and our service is yours, king. And that is what's represented as they bring this gift of gold. And for us, the Lord is still looking for worshipers. Jesus said that the Father is seeking after those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. Are you a worshiper? Have you come to worship him? Wise men still come and seek him and worship him. Are you a wise woman? Are you a wise man? But when you come and you worship, what are you saying? You're saying, you deserve my allegiance. You deserve my reverence. You deserve my service because you are king and I am your servant. And a lot of people chafe about that, don't they? They hate the idea that anybody would rule over them. They hate the idea that anybody would have a say in their life, that their thoughts and their passions and their desires and their, uh, even their urges would have to be governed by another. Who is anybody to come and tell me how to live my life? And this is where a lot of people stop and resist the Lord. Think about it. When Jesus came, John tells us that men loved their deeds more than they loved him. And so they rejected the light of the world and they hid in their darkness. And people are still doing this today because they don't want a king over them. But Jesus needs to be sitting on the throne of our lives. He deserves that. He created us as his special objects of, uh, of love, and he wants us to follow him and to serve him. If Jesus is not sitting on the throne of your life, you need to let him on today. But he's not going to kick you off. He's not going to get you by the you know, back of your neck and just rip you off and say, this is my 
place. And I will sit here. You, as a matter of your will, must respond to his love and his grace. Acknowledging his sovereignty and his lordship and say, you may sit here. And so that gold is representing a king and the worship that he deserves. They also brought frankincense. This was a sweet spice in the ancient world. And this is one where if gold is associated with a king in Scripture, frankincense is associated with the ministry that took place in the tabernacle with a priest. Frankincense was a spice that was prominent in the grain offerings and the burnt offerings and the anointing oil put on the showbread. It was all over the tabernacle and in the temple. Now, if you were working outside in the altar... You probably would get whiffs of that, and you may not smell if you've been you know, doing sacrifices all day long. You may not go home smelling sweet. But if you've been where the table of the showbread was and the altar of incense and you know, the, the candelabra, if you, if you had been ministering in there, the lampstands, when you came, you were in a, a closed room all day with this stuff just permeating in your hair and on your skin and in your clothes. And if you were walking behind a priest that was on duty there, you would have smelled that. You would have that sweet aroma as you walked behind them. You would have smelled that trailing, uh, you know, sweet aroma that was there. And you would have said, oh, a priest or somebody that's been working with the frankincense. Um, it's in Exodus chapter 30, verses uh, 34 through 38, that you can read about um, how uh, Moses is instructed by the Lord to take sweet spices, uh, one of which was frankincense, and was to put them together in a compound, and that it should not be duplicated, but it was reserved for um, service there in the worship of the Lord. And if you tried to make this stuff at home, you were to be cut off from his people. It was to be completely associated, not frankincense by itself, but with these other ones, that compound was to be completely associated, that aroma, that fragrance, with just being in the presence of the Lord. And so as the priest would be walking home, there would be this sense of, oh, the mediator's been at work. And that's what the priests were. They were the go-between. They were representing the people of Israel to God. But we have another mediator today, don't we? 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And so when we fellowship with him, when we spend time with him, our lives should take on a fragrance of Christ. There should be aroma that's associated. And really, if you think about it, we are told in, in Peter that we are the priests uh, today in the new covenant. And we are the ones that... Um, of course, Jesus is that mediator, but we're the ones that are representing the Lord. We're the light of the world that are taking uh, the love of Christ to people. And people should be aware that we have fellowship with him, that we've been in his presence, that we've been in the house of the Lord, if you will. And our lives are sweet to people because we've been in the presence of Jesus. It makes me think of, of Mary who opened that alabaster flask of costly spikenard. And as she anointed him, that the whole house took on the fragrance of that perfume. That should be our lives. When people get close, they shouldn't say, man, your attitude stinks. It should be, you are gracious. You are merciful. You are kind. You are generous. Because that is who our Lord is. So they brought gold associated with the king. 
That was appropriate because he's a king. They brought frankincense associated with the priest. That's appropriate because he is that high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And they brought myrrh. And myrrh was associated with, um, with death, an embalming ointment. But Jesus was a redeemer. He was the Lamb of God that was going to be slain for the sin of the world. And after he had died, John 19, verse 39 says, And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of, what do you think? Myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. And then again in Mark 15, 23, Jesus was offered a drink while he was on the cross, and it was a drink that had a mixture with myrrh in it. And we see myrrh being associated in the death of Jesus. Frankincense, frankincense, and myrrh. He was a king, he was a priest, and he is the Lamb of God, or if you will, he is the Redeemer. It's interesting to me that as we read in Scripture, like Isaiah 60, verse 6, speaking of the millennial kingdom, when people will be coming into Jerusalem to worship the Lord, we read this, The multitude of camels shall cover your land, the dromedaries of Midian and Ephah, and all those of Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and they shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. What's missing? Myrrh. Jesus will still be ruling and reigning as king. And acknowledging him as Lord and the allegiance and the reverence will still be proper and right. Coming and bringing frankincense, yet yeah, he is, he is the, the high priest and he is over the house of the Lord. It is right that they would bring that. But you know what? You don't need to bring myrrh because Jesus is not going to die again. He died what? Once for all. He's not going back to the cross. Now listen, I realize that as we look at this, um, these are things that are very physical, and I am certainly taking some liberties here, but I, I feel very comfortable with the significance and the symbolism that they represent in our life. We should be worshipers, and we should be acknowledging the kingship and the, the priesthood, and we should acknowledge him as redeemer. As we wrap up in Matthew chapter 2, I want to read these, and we'll see that there was no room for worshiping the Lord um, in Herod's heart. He asked, I want to go worship, but there was no room. Verse 12, then being divinely warned in a dream that they should return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry and sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all the districts from two years old and under according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. What a sick guy he was. Just going to go kill all the young children, 
all the male children, indiscriminately. He didn't want to worship. He was threatened by worship. We can say without a question, there was no room for Jesus with Herod. There was no room in him at all. He feigned it, but there really was no room for Herod. But that's not the only place where there wasn't room. We go back earlier in the story in another account in Luke chapter 2, verse 7. And we read that there was no room in Bethlehem. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was what? No room for them in the inn. Quinerius had given an order that all of Israel should take census. And so people were not living in their regular homes. So all the inns and all the lodges, they were, they were jam-packed. And, you know, with Herod, you can blame him easily. You know, we like to kind of ride the poor innkeeper, but, I mean, he didn't know. But he was just caught up. He was caught up with what was going on all around him. And there was no room in Bethlehem. You know, the world was on its, you know, busy schedule. In Luke 21, verse 34, Jesus said, Take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing. You know, I'm not doing that. Drunkenness? You're like, I'm not getting drunk. Okay, great. But then he says this, and the cares of the life, of this life. And we all are like, okay, that one I need to pay attention to. I don't know, maybe it is carousing and partying that you need to pay attention to. Maybe it is drunkenness and drugs that's dominating your life. But if you miss those first two categories, we're all right here. Got to stop and say, am I caught up with the cares of this life? Am I weighed down with just living life? Because that is what was going on when there was no room for Jesus. I, you know, I, I don't want to be too hard on the innkeeper. Maybe he's going to be in heaven. He's like, hey, I didn't know. I'm like, I'm sorry. I didn't, you know, I... But the wise men from the east knew. But somebody in the town where it had been prophesied that Jesus was to be born didn't know. And I can't say why. Maybe there's no fault there. But you just wonder if he was too busy with the cares of this life. We should be careful. No room with Herod. No room in Bethlehem. And there was no room among the religious leaders of the day either. For in John 7.1 we read of these leaders. After these things Jesus walked in Galilee. For he did not want to walk. For did not walk in Judea. Because the Jews sought to kill him. Why? Because he healed people. Because he, he healed a lame man. Because he raised people from the dead. Pilate put it this way. I know why you want to kill him. Because you're jealous of him. And the attention that he's getting. The religious leaders. I mean you might be able to. You certainly could give the innkeeper a pass. You can't give Herod a pass. But you certainly can't give the religious leaders. Who knew where Jesus was to be born. They heard the same report of the wise men. And yet they didn't have room for him. When he was doing the very things. That this Isaiah the prophet said he would do, they rejected him and wanted nothing to do with him because he did not fit their preconceived ideas. They examined Jesus for 33 years and they said, you're the prophet, let us examine you. And for the three years of his ministry, they did that. And then you know what they did after examining him? They flunked him and said, you're not our Messiah. You're out of here. And they put him to death. There was no room among the religious leaders. There was no room in Nazareth. What's that? There was no room among those who were the most familiar with him. There was no room in his family. That changes, praise the Lord. 
But what we read in Mark chapter 6, verses uh, 3 through 6, makes this so clear. Jesus is doing ministry now in Nazareth. And we read their response. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he, and they, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. Jesus is blown away that their hearts are so hard that they can't see and know who he is. There was no room for Jesus in Nazareth in his hometown. It was that familiarity thing. We say familiarity breeds contempt. Well, there you have it. And I would say to those of you that know who Jesus are and you're close to him, you're followers of him, be careful that it doesn't become so familiar that Jesus is no big deal. And that you start to get offended by the, the lordship and the work and the teaching that he wants to do in your life. Oh, you know who he is, but man, you just don't, you're not real thrilled with him right now. Because he wants to change things. What if Jesus in 2020 wants to turn your world upside down for his glory and for his kingdom? He wants to change everything about your life. Can he do it? I'm not saying, can he force you? We know he could force you to do it. I'm asking, would you let him do it? Would you let him change things all around in your life? Because that's what a king has the authority to do. Well, there's no room in Nazareth. And there was no room among the swineherders either, right? You remember the story? The demoniacs healed. The demon goes into the swine. The herd of swine run down and go off the cliff and they all die. In Matthew 8.34, we read, Behold, the whole city came to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. Get out of here. They had no room for him there either. See, Jesus wasn't good for business. If you're a swine herder and all your swine are dead, that's bad news. But, you know, I can't help but to think that if they would have come and said, clearly, you are someone special. This man who has terrorized us, he is in his right mind, and he's telling us that you are the Messiah, that you are someone to be listened to. We want to hear from you. We want to know what you will have to know. Oh, and by the way, what do we do now? We don't know how we're going to make it. We don't know how to live. I have a feeling that Jesus could have come up with a great new business plan for them and how they could have taken care of themselves. But they never got to that point. They just said, can you leave? We, you cramp our style. And lastly, and maybe it's probably not the last point you can make, but the last one that we have time for today is, and there was no room in the church. Now that one might be the most surprising of all. No room in the church. No room in the church. You see the reference up there, Revelation 3.20. A lot of you have that committed to memory. Behold, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Where's Jesus? He's on the outside. He's not welcome on the inside. And we know about the church of Laodicea. They said, we have need of nothing. Their self-sufficiency put Jesus on the outside. Now, the church certainly knows better. 
the religious leaders should have known better. The church definitely knows better, and you know better. Has Jesus found room in your life? Are you a follower of Christ? Then, then praise the Lord. He should find a place in your life. And interestingly, in John 14, 23, and I'll close with this one. It says, Jesus answered and said to them, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Jesus is still looking for a place to come in. And, and it's, it's him and the Father. They want to make your life their home. Do you have room for Jesus? Is he able to come in and say, here's my word and here's my will. This is the way you live your life. This is, this is what I want for you. This is how I want you to spend your days, your energies, your talents, your skills. This is what I want you to do. Is he comfortable in your life as his home? Or is he uncomfortable? You know, we've all been to homes, and sometimes we go to homes, and we stay there, and it's just, well, it's just like so comfortable. And other times you go there, and it's like, well, this is not, you know, comfortable, you know? I mean, if I, if I went and stayed at your house, you know, for a week, and you had a cat, I guarantee you, I would not be comfortable. <laughs> my eyes would be red. I'd be taking, you know, medicine. I'd be sleepy because I'm trying to deal with, the, you know, my allergic reaction. Is Jesus comfortable in your house? Is he comfortable with what's going on? In your household. When Jesus comes back, I hope that he finds you as one that has made your life ready for him. First coming, no, no room for Jesus. Now, when Jesus comes for the church, we should have room for him. But at the second coming, it's interesting, when Jesus comes back a second time, you know what, there's not going to be room for him again. The world is going to gather together and they're going to say, let's go make war against the Lamb. But Jesus is going to say, not this time. Not this time. I came as a lamb of God the first time, but I'm coming back as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he's going to clean house. And he's going to set up his kingdom. Well, let's close in prayer. And as we do, I want to just press that issue of are you a one that has made room for Christ? Let's pray. Let's come to the Lord.